Hey everybody, it's Matthew, and this is just a little Father's Day bonus episode of Slee Ricketts. My dad found out about this podcast recently and uh, promptly made me walk him through how to subscribe. Uh, his first and so far, thus far, only two comments uh, on it were, Ugh, why'd you call it that? And, oh, I see you used the Nazi font. So I think it's going to be a big hit with him. I can't wait till he hears the episode on ASMR and porn. Uh, so this uh, this little <laughs> episode today is a conversation I recorded with Anna Backer, uh, director of the Cincinnati School of Music, along with her husband, Joe Backer. Uh, Anna, or AK as I uh, call her um, for Anna Catherine, is my little sister. And she is a big Billie Eilish fan. So she, had, you know, initially we planned for this to be sort of a follow-up to the conversation I had with Tracy. But uh, instead, we just ended up talking about poetry and classical music the whole time. So um, we make fun at some point of uh, somebody called Daniel. And uh, that is my little brother who did the, ep uh, the, the art for Slee Ricketts. And was also the one who ratted me out to our dad. So uh, happy Father's Day, everybody. Uh, there's also at the end of this episode, um, there is a little poem I read. So if you like poetry, then stick around for that. And if you hate poetry, then why the fuck are you listening to this podcast? Though, oh, I guess I hate poetry too. So never mind. Fair enough. I hope you all enjoy this. But yeah, it was undergrad and um, high school. I do think I was very analytical. I would listen to pop music or, you know, non-classical music, a lot of different style music and uh, style of music and would try to analyze what was happening. And as a result, I don't think I enjoyed it as much <laughs> um, because I was maybe just overthinking it and not just allowing the sounds to just take hold of me and, and just go with what I'm listening. Um, I think when we're students and we're actively studying something, um, you know, we can really take that to heart and try to analyze everything relating to what we're studying. Um, but yeah, now I, I'll listen to something and just try to, just try to sit back and enjoy it. Um, I think like anyone else would, I don't know. <laughs> do you find you're able to do that with, uh, with, classical as well as pop music or is it more one than the other yeah you know with classical music now I think it's interesting with more life experience now I just have very profound realiz uh, yeah profound realizations about life listening to classical music there's something that just almost takes me outside of myself and um, 
it just sort of makes me reflect on life and reflect on um, sort of the big picture. Um, and yeah, feel emotions very deeply. I, I feel them, I feel an emotional reaction on a lot deeper level with classical music, um, which, you know, often I don't, <laughs> I don't necessarily always want to feel a really deep, intense emotional reaction. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get the dishes done, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's nice just to have something, you know, that's not too intense and that just is fun to listen to or it's sort of, um, I don't know, even like some sort of angry music or um, just sort of a light, happy music that's that's kind of, or something more chill. Yeah. So sometimes I, I don't necessarily enjoy listening to classical music if I'm just trying to have kind of like a, a calmer time or driving the kids to school. Um, but yeah, I do feel like there's just a much deeper, intense emotional um, experience for me when I listen to classical music. No, I can, I mean, I can relate. Part, part of the um, motivation of this podcast has been a sort of a, a little bit of um, ennui for me, uh, with regard to poetry, um, there's a, an essay Mark Twain wrote where he talked about, you know, being riverboat captain and how, you know, the, as you, as you get more experience on the river, you come to be able to recognize the, the, what all of these little elements of the view of the river ahead mean for your boat and where, you know, even just the ripples in the surface of the water, where there may be a threat where you may be you know, hitting a sandbar or something, you know, where there may be, you know, a, a, a tree that's fallen into the water. And so he said that by the time he was, he, you know, he'd been doing it for a few years, he was able to read a river really fluently and effortlessly. It was, you know, just a glance out at the river and be able to identify lots of what was happening in the topography. But he said it also just ruined rivers for him. You could, <laughs> you could no longer just enjoy you know, he, he said, he speculated that like doctors must like no longer be able to like appreciate beautiful people because they just look <laughs> like symptoms. <laughs> um, and I mean, you know, Emily Lighthouser said that that was what, that was what learning about poetry had taught, had done for her. You know, she's a poet and she was also raised by two poets. Um, mm -hmm. But she said that it basically, she knew too much for it to have an effect on her um, but, but I, I can, it's funny, you know, you, it's funny. You, I had not thought about that because I, I guess, um, it's, it's harder to remember that like other people have a chronological development and rather than just sort of having all of their properties at once, you know, we look at each other and we see you are still the person you have always been, but it's interesting to hear you say that you studied music really intensely. Because it was, I mean, the, probably the, the most white hot period was high school and then college mm -hmm. um, when you're still just really, really young. Yeah. So that you're, you know, the, like uh, in that architecture book, our dad, um, may, you know, always gets non-architects to read um, so they can appreciate his toil. Um, Alain de Baton's 
uh, architecture of happiness, he says, it's impossible to appreciate architecture until you have made a, a really serious mistake in your life. Like until you've like done something in your life that you can't take back that like really fucks you up. It's like, then you can look at a building. Oh, and say, oh okay. I, I appreciate yeah. that. But when you're, you know, when you're 20 and doing this conservatory work in piano, you have a really great technical understanding of it, but you're not old enough yet to appreciate what may have even motivated the composition of some of the greatest music. Though, I mean, though, I guess with someone like Mozart, it's just like, fuck, just maybe it'll blow your brains out because that doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> I think one, I think probably the thing that I appreciate most about classical music, I guess this really shows up the most in Beethoven's works and then onward from that is the development of a theme and how that theme, just the journey it takes through a piece of music and how it might start out very simple, um, nothing really special. And then it just continues to, to evolve and to struggle and to just persevere and, you know, hopefully often triumph or have some kind of a resolution. <laughs> it, it might be a sad resolution. It might be um, tragic or, um, you know, but, but just that journey of the theme and how it evolves and grows. Um, and I think for me with the more life experience, when I hear, I think it's Shostakovich's fifth symphony has um, the last movement has just an incredible evolution of this theme that's um, really heroic at the end. Um, and that, a lot, I, I love Beethoven so much. So, so much of his works have this, this theme that will develop and it just keep, keeps growing and building and struggling. And, um, you know, it just sort of turns into this masterful, amazing, incredible um, journey. It starts out so simple. And then by the end, it's something so great. So I feel like life is a lot like that. We would hope that it has a triumphant ending. Um, or resolution to, you know, our growth as a person. But yeah, I think that's what I appreciate most about, you know, classical music, more kind of Beethoven onwards, you find that more in that music. And then the craftsmanship, box preludes and fugues, just these beautiful jigsaw puzzles, just so elegant. Everything fits perfectly together in this, this sort of scaffolded, uh, structured piece of craftsmanship that's also very beautiful at the same time. So yeah, I mean, in a way that's very architectural too. And yeah, with poetry, I, I'm don't, I'm not much of a, well, I don't know anything about poetry <laughs> except <laughs> yeah. I am not a poetry person. Um, but I feel like there with a great poem, there are some poems that I really do um, appreciate and and love and I feel like there's so much packed into this little diamond um, with not very many words yet what, there's so a, much meaning what's a poem that you like 
Um, John, so yeah, this is where I'm, I can't, I might not remember the title. Or just a, but, a line or, you know. Yeah, I think it's by John Dunn. Um, uh, Better My Heart, Three Person God. It might be. It's something about having to say goodbye to the oh, lover and yeah. um, like gold to airy thinness beat. And it's talking about yeah, having yeah, to yeah. leave and the compass. A valediction know. forbidding morning. Yeah. Yes, that's what yeah. it is. I love that one. Um, maybe it's because Joe and I dated long distance and it was, <laughs> yeah. it was meaningful to me in that way. I felt like I, you know, I don't know. It, it I felt like I understood what he was getting at in that poem. I, I felt it myself having to say goodbye to someone you love. And um, yeah, like gold to airy thinness beat. I loved that part of the poem talking about someone's love that's so pure and no matter how far you, you break apart from someone or, or you are apart from someone, the love does not break across all that space. Um, and yeah, there's actually, um, uh, let's see. Yeah, there's a concert etude by Liszt. Um, so Spiro, which I played in college. And um, I remember Joe helped me with it, um, just kind of learning it. And well, beyond learning it, just sort of the concept behind what do I want to convey to the audience when I play it not you know beyond just okay playing the notes playing all the dynamics articulations all the kind of musicality of it um and yeah there's this and the addition that I had there was an alternate ending um so it's you know just if you if you want you can add this other ending that List wrote um and the ending it starts out with chords and the chords just gradually are rolling out uh, farther and farther away from each other. The hands are moving away from each other. Um, the right hand's moving higher, higher and up the register. The left hand's going farther down to the depths of the base of the piano. And, and it's getting softer and softer um, as you just spread out across the keys and every time I played that ending, I always thought of um, like gold to airy thinness beat mm -hmm. because these hands are moving farther and farther away. This piece is very, very romantic and lush with just feelings of love. Um, and I don't know, it just made me think of no matter how far apart we might be, our love and physically your hands are getting farther and farther apart on the piano. Um, but yeah, the love is, is so strong. It's not going to break. Um, it's just like gold. So. You know, I, I'm, I've, I've kind of speculated about this. Um, but talking to you, I, I feel increasingly convinced that, and I, I then I'll be interested to hear your take on the other end of this, but I, I I'm really dislike the way poetry tends to get taught uh, in school, especially in, you know, middle and high school, um, you know, the puzzle solving approach to it, uh, or just sort of a memorization of 
poetic techniques, which then people rattle off in a way that that just you know that robs them of any meaning. Because of course, nobody what what you don't learn in school is well, they're not just doing this because they're writing poetry. They're, they're doing this to produce an effect. Mm-hmm. Doing this because it does something to you when you know when you use it. But I I tend to think so. Classical music is not doesn't have a big big part in our culture, but there are a handful of songs that almost everybody recognizes, um, mostly because they get overused in movies, but there's some, you know, some recognition, some sense of uh, appreciation. And then, you know, people who studied some music or maybe took a music appreciation course in college are able to connect with a little little bit more. Um, I, my feeling is that the way we teach poetry doesn't just fail to get people to appreciate it, uh, it, it actually sort of poisons them against it. <laughs> that in fact, I think it ends up being worse than nothing. Because, you know, I think with classical music, you know, you bring it up with most people and they just sort of, uh, the, you know, a question mark pops up above their head. But with poetry, it's, you know, it's like a skull and crossbones. Like, oh, shit, yeah, no, I don't get poetry. Keep, keep that away from me. Um, <laughs> and I kind of feel like we would be better off if we didn't teach poetry in school, but we just had, you know, um, poetry appreciation courses occasionally. Yeah, um, I'd love to take a poetry appreciation course. I felt you didn't like have to come up with any answers. You just got to just got to enjoy it, you know. Yeah, I do feel like when I'm reading a poem, I am trying to figure out what's going on or what it's I'm trying to figure out what it's about. Maybe what where the where the poet was in their life, um what has happened to them in their life that made them want to write it. Um, I don't know if you have it, hopefully you do. Um, this little blue book of poems by Mom that she wrote oh, yeah, yeah, for yeah. her life. Yeah. Yeah. And they're very, very Mimam, short. Mimam is our, um, our grandmother, our, our paternal grandmother. She, yeah, um, amazing mom of eight kids, however many umpteen grandkids and great grands and just just such an amazing woman and you know had experienced a lot in her life and if I'm struggling with um you know just being a being a mom and just trying to seek some perspective or guidance I'll look through this book of poems that she wrote and um I don't know. It's very personal. I know her. So, but even if I didn't know the poet, I'm thinking about where was this person? What was their life like when they wrote it? And, you know, what can I draw from this poem that's going to be meaningful to me and where I'm at in my life? Um, and that's pretty much all. That's pretty much all that I think about when I read a poem, I guess I, I'm sure I'm missing a lot of maybe deeper layers or it's almost like one of those puzzle boxes where <laughs> where you're trying to figure out how to unlock it. Um, sure, sure, but if you, you know, if you w- were to go to the symphony with a non-musician who was not a music critic, but just sort of listened and, and enjoyed it and and she came away and said, man, that was great. 
you wouldn't say like, well, I'm, I'm sure you thought it was great, but you were really just getting the surface. You'd say like, well, good. I'm great. I'm glad you liked, liked it. Yeah. There's, there's more. Or like, you can listen again. Or this, you know, I do. It's funny. You, you brought up something about me, mom, that I had not really thought about because she, she was, I mean, she was a really um, richly educated woman and she, she wrote poetry her whole life because um, there's some from when she was much younger as well. And, and uh, some of those memoirs um, and she, she also painted, you know, like as a, a sort yeah, of a she's a beautiful painter. Pretty, yeah. Pretty serious, you know, amateur. Uh, she also did ceramic work um, and she played uh, the piano. Um, uh, and she took, I mean, she took lessons, to, you know, till well into her eighties, I want to say. Um, yeah. But it was, and she did, and she did make some um, books of, you know, memoirs for, for herself and for her mother and helped with um, our grandfather's, uh, memoir so she you know she put down that kind of prose record along with just all the wonderful photographs in there but it was important to her to um to put together a collection of her poems in a little you know privately printed book for us in a way that i mean you know plenty of people in the family have a, a painting or so or a, a sculpture in the house somewhere but it there is something about poetry that reads as um personal and you know in a, in a way that it feels like it maybe just because in our daily lives we're speaking all the time but we're not necessarily making colors or you know music in the air or mm -hmm. or sculpture that that in some way that's more that feels more essential to who you are i should say that that book of poetry i worked with her for a year or two on it um on putting oh, it together really? Well, well, hold on. I worked with her, you know, pretty, pretty closely, um, uh, editing, you know, she, she had pages and pages, uh, editing things down and, and making selections and ordering and then titling. And, um, and then when she finally put out the, the, um, the little collection, a hundred percent of all my suggestions and, and help and editing was disregarded. So she, she the book she put out was just exactly what, which is, I mean, which is great, which is fun, which is wonderful, but it, it, um, that's it so was, me, uh, mom. That's oh, yeah, so, was, she's, yeah. yeah. She was very, yeah, very encouraging, very supportive, but also, um, we just sort of quietly do exactly what she wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, um, Man, I wish I wish there were somebody else like really close to you in your family who had a book of poetry you could read in times of of trouble. That would be that would be really good. <laughs> no, yeah, please. Uh, though, I, though, actually, if you are going to turn to um, you know somebody's book of poetry, uh, Joanna's might be more might offer more consolation than mine. Well, okay, let me back up there. No, no, I, I'm, I'm giving no, you. No, I, I read I have, it. As, I have to give you a little shit. From a, from a mom to a mom. Of from, course, of course, yeah. From, yeah, and it's. Yeah. Um, yeah, she had decades of of uh, insight, you know, uh, going into that book. She's she's a big female role model to me. So. Yeah, she's no. I mean, she's she's a role model for me. Um, I'll say I always felt like I understood her, and could take after her more than I could with. Um, our granddad, who's a great man, but was a, um, a very sort of old, old school patriarch. Yes. Uh, which I, yeah. Um, yeah, I lo loved him, but I was never, 
Uh, I was never quite gonna <laughs> gonna live up to that. Uh, you know, one of the last conversations I had with him, he was he he called me on the phone to read me the riot act. <laughs> I mean, just like he didn't swear that often, but he just tore into me over the phone about this play of mine that he'd read uh, and how horrible it was. And then okay. and then later that day, me mom called me. And she said, well, you were an idiot for showing it to Alec, but just send me a copy and I won't tell them. <laughs> uh, which, you know, was characteristic of, of both of them. Oh, man. Do you, do you think about, um, I, I don't know, I don't know if authenticity is, I mean, I know it, it comes in and out of fashion, but it's something I think Americans are really obsessed with. Um, do you think about authenticity or, so it manifests differently in different art forms, like sincerity, you know, you said earlier, you know, Billie Eilish sings from the heart. It's not, it doesn't feel contrived. Um, do, do you think about authenticity or sincerity or, you know, from the heartness? when you listen to classical music at all? Is that a quality that enters into the evaluation? Um, I mean, yeah, it does. Um, it's different. So yeah, with classical music, you are taking, I mean, you can have a good composition and you can have a bad composition or maybe one that's, going to be at a, an extremely high level, um, just exquisitely composed yeah. piece of work or something that's kind of not, it's kind of a, you know, hackneyed, not, not so great, but yeah, I mean, you, then you're taking that person's composition and then you are mm, playing it, you're executing the notes. And so you can have someone who's just sort of playing the notes in a kind of a robotic way. And, um, or you can have someone who, um, a performance that the performer um, has more of a, a freedom and is not so inhibited by just staying in the box of exactly what's on the page, but you know, maybe bringing their own interpretation to it. Um, and some of the musical choices they make, um, maybe with timing um, or rubato, um, dynamics. Although, I mean, you're, you're having to follow the dynamics on the page, but maybe, you know, how much contrast do you have from one dynamic to the next? Um, tempo, tempo is a huge one where you can really have your own interpretation. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's kind of like a little bit removed because you've got, the composer and what they created from their heart. Um, and then, or it, you know, it could have not necessarily been from the heart. It could have been like a very, you know, like a more of a craftsmanship kind of, I'm creating this, I'm building this, um, this masterpiece, um, like say a, a really, you know, one of Bach's fugues. I feel like it's just this amazing, three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle um, of time and space. And, but then you have the performer 
who's then it's from their heart. So it's a little bit removed, I think. I don't know. I mean, um, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. Well, no, <laughs> I, I mean, just, yeah. yeah, I, I, um, so Ye Yates has this line in uh, a poem called Adam's Curse and Adam's Curse is, is work. Um, you know, after the, you know, leaving the garden, uh, humankind had to, had to work rather than just having everything, you know, blossom and fall at his feet. And the, um, it's an interesting poem because he, he's talking to this, uh, the, these two women and he says something about like, oh man, it's so hard being a poet. And, um, and, uh, uh, you know, having to really work, work to make the lines seem natural. He says, if it does not seem a moment's thought, our stitching and unstitching has been not. Um, and, and he says something about like how they're beautiful and how this is sort of effortless. And, and then their response is like, oh, you did not realize that, that like we must labor to be beautiful. Like <laughs> everything, like there's, everything is, is labor. And, and in fact, part of the goal of the labor is seeming effortlessness. Um, yes. <laughs> because that, I mean, that's what that partly because that ends up reading is sincere, or authentic. But I think with classical music, I wonder if maybe kind of like with playwriting where you, there are qualities we, we look for and you certainly want something that feels in some way with playwriting, at least you're sort of, you can write in a way that sounds like, oh, a real person would speak like that. Mm -hmm. But it's really, it's the actors and the musicians who bring a sense of immediate authenticity. Because mm -hmm. uh, they're the ones in the moment play, you know, even though all, all of it is contrived, all of it is artificial, but they're the ones who can bring that feeling of spontaneity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I uh, it's definitely not listen to or study classical music enough to have the ability to really evaluate um, much in the way of different performances, but uh, I did have a, a, when I was tutoring in Baltimore, I had a, a little violin prodigy, a little 10 year old girl who was like, you know, driving up to Juilliard every weekend. Um, wow. and she played a piece for me. I can't remember what it was. I want to say that, um, but she played this thing for me and it was very impressive to my ignorant ear, but it was, I, it also, I could hear that. It, there were no mistakes, at least none that I could detect, but it also was, um, there was also no understanding mm, that yeah. it, I mean, she, like, she's clearly like an amazing musician, but she's still a 10 year old girl. Mm -hmm. And that like, even if, even if her technique didn't improve at all, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later, she would bring to it an understanding of life that's again, I don't know if that's authentic. I mean, it's authenticity in a different way. It's not, it's not the authenticity of spontaneity. It's the authenticity of perspective or, you know, no, I think, I, I think yeah, sorry, yeah. go ahead. I, I think no about spontaneity. Um, yeah. I think, I guess from the heart in terms of a, a, a performer performing a piece of music that they have labored over for months, every single note and they've, you know, just so much repetition and then when they perform it and the audience hears it, for the audience, it's their first time hearing that performance, that performer play that piece um, at that time. And can the performer 
despite all of the repetition and labor that preceded go leading up to that performance, can they make it sound spontaneous? Can they give the feeling to the audience that it's almost like they're just making it up as they go and that it is truly, that can they kind of give that emotional response of making the audience feel some kind of profound emotional, either like a realization or just, you know, some kind of a response, some powerful effect um, through this very, um, you know, fleeting every single moment. It's like, it's gone. You can't get it back. Um, ephemeral performance. I, and I love that about music. It just, it goes and there's no, it's not um, tangible really. Um, and if you could, there. if you could save it, if you could hold on to the moment, then it would no longer, like it wouldn't work at all because the whole point is that it's changing, that, that there's without the development, without the change, there's no music. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, can you, can you make it not sound like you practiced it a million hours <laughs> um, right. over and over? Can you make it sound like it's this sort of spontaneous thing? And then with that, um, play it in a way that, that sounds meaningful to you, the performer, and then is meaningful to the audience, or the, whoever the listener or listeners are. Yeah. So I guess in that way, from the heart is what I think about with specifically with classical music. Yeah, that makes sense. There's a, the one of the um, common places with with uh, theater was the um, because it's a collaborative art form. You have designers and you know uh, actors and the writer and um, tech and you know, lighting. All these different people putting things together. That the the, um, the the question is sort of where, where is the play? You know, like if you put all of the, if you put the whole play together, because if you, you know, uh, with a stage design, it's often you, you know, with a kitchen sink realism, you walk on stage and, and you, you can walk around and it, it feels sort of like being in a room, sort of like being in a real place. Uh, but, but really all of it is cheated out toward the audience so that even if you're on stage, things don't actually look right. And you're not, you know, you're not sort of not quite facing each other. And, mm. you know, if you, 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 you can see the wings, you can see other, you know, the, the rigs above. Uh, so that really the question is like, all of the different elements of the play, all of the events happening, as well as the physical properties and the set and the costumes, the play itself only exists in the mind of the audience. That, like that's the place where all of it comes together into something like a world, something like a unified story that every, if everybody's doing his job right, they're all contributing to that reality. And I, if, with music, I, I mean, clearly being a musician or being a conductor or being somebody, you know, working in the orchestra, you, you have a radically different experience than the audience does, but there is something wonderful about music in that though, you know, clearly there are like better and worse seats and louder and quieter parts of the theater. Everybody's hearing the same music. That the the experience of the, the whole music is together for everybody who's in that room, including everybody who's working on it. I feel like it's actually 
it could be said that it's kind of similar to what you just said about um, being actors on a stage that is very audience focused and what's happening on the stage um, is a lot of stuff that when it all comes together and the acoustics and the, the sound of what's happening up on stage, when it all melds together and hits the audience, it's going to be, a, it's done in a way on stage where it hits the audience in a certain way. But what you might experience on stage as the conductor, as one of the musicians, it might sound differently, but and, yeah. Uh, I mean, no, that, well, no, I mean, that, that does make makes sense that um, the story is that the, like the David um, in Florence was designed to be seen from below. Mm. And so it's the proportions get, the scale increases slightly as you go oh, up yeah. from the toes. So, so it's really like m most of our images of it are kind of from a distance, you know, seen in full mm -hmm. length. And it, you know, it's a little top heavy. It's it really, it's the, the correct view of it is from below so that instead of sort of having his head shrink to a pin, it, <laughs> it sort of looks, it looks right by being actually a little bit wrong. And yeah. I, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought about that, but I guess it was just because I haven't really studied sound, but that makes sense that you would, that the version of the music you heard right on stage might be actually a slightly distorted version because it's meant to come together out in the audience, out in the house. Yeah, and you know, just depending on the acoustics of the hall, if an orchestra is gonna go on tour, I, um, they're gonna likely be changing certain things based on the acoustics of how how the stage is and what level the, the sound is traveling from the audience. There's certain Cincinnati's um, music hall, the stage where the orchestra performed on used to be at a different acoustical level than where the audience was. And it, it was pretty problematic, but they, they changed it. And now it's sort of all on this one um, level, I, I suppose. I mean, there is a stage, but acoustically the sound's not having to just be in a completely separate realm than where the audience is. But yeah, I mean, I think um, the acoustic space you're in will change the way that you perform it for how it, that music's going to be heard by the audience when it when the sound hits them, so. I'm, cu I'm curious, and you can say as little as you want, or, uh, but you know, you, uh, when we were younger, you you wrote and performed some of your own music. I mean, it was more like singer songwriter type music um, than, you know, of the, of the classical style. Um, I th and I thought so recently you said you, you dabbled a little bit or you'd kind of come, maybe it took, it took being away from, from playing for a while to make some of it feel more hospitable. Um, is that, has that been something you've, I mean, obviously in the pandemic, mm. are, everything's just shot to shit, but um, has that been something that has uh, come back for you at all? Um, I, not really. I wrote, um, a couple of songs and, you know, piano and, and singing in college. Um, and then just life has been busy and haven't really come back to it. I, I did really enjoy that a lot. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I would love to get back into doing some singer songwriter stuff um, or even just playing other people's 
music that I like. Um, you know, maybe I can try to pick up some of Billie Eilish. Um, although I am a very much an alto and she has a much higher range than mine. mine. So that probably wouldn't work, but maybe Fiona Apple or some Tori Amos or something. Um, I've been, there's a Radiohead song um, like Spinning Plates. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's the live version, which is totally different Right, because the because um, the the record version would I would think it'd be sort of unperformable. Yeah, it's not yeah. you know not for piano at least. Um, but yeah, there's a really lovely just um, very lyrical piano version. Um, so I've been I remember I, I when I went into labor with Luke um, third one, so I was like, okay, that's what this is. This is happening. I thought I'm gonna just sit down and play through this a few times because I think I'm not going to have very much time to to play the piano after this little guy arrives and like that's <laughs> that's really the last time <laughs> it's like almost three years ago it's just really hard to I do work with Lena and um when she she's learning like a, a jazz a jazzy tune oh you beautiful doll and so I'll kind of sing along with her she's learning some phantom of the opera and I do mm. some singing when I'm playing, helping her, um, helping to teach stuff to her. So I, I try to just do whatever I can, whenever I can, but it's hard times, time to myself to be able to actually sit down and really practice is hard to find, um, or much less compose something, um, with the kids, but I am in this phase of my life that I wanted and I do, and I do want it. I wanted it back then before I had it. And I want it now. I'm in this phase of my life with small children and, you know, I'm going to try to just, uh, enjoy this phase. And then when they get older, I will have, I will be in another phase and I can, you know, maybe have some more free time to, to delve back into that. So. Yeah. Yeah. There's no, it's impossible to wish the time passed right with kids because like the, yeah. the, the point of kids is not having an 18 year old right the <laughs> point of kids is like every dumb moment of, along the way where they're you know throwing up in your bed after they climbed in at four in the morning or some yeah. other uh yeah uh some some that's the it's all it's our friends in baltimore said that it was like they were having their kid was sick it's like they were both trying to get to work in the morning and she she turned to her husband and said like well this is the good part yeah. uh, <laughs> like that's pretty that's pretty true i love reading um novels because you'll, and similar to what we were talking about with poetry, at least for me, thinking about where was this poet in their life? What were they going through? What had they had happened to them in their life up to that moment when they wrote that poem? Mm -hmm. And then what does the effect of that poem mean to me with where I am in my life and everything that's happened to me? And um, I lost my train of thought here. We were talking, and then with novels, you know, just, yeah, getting a different perspective. You have the perspective of the storyteller um, or the main character, some third person, um, and then their their perspective and their experience brings to me a new understanding of life and of 
maybe a new perspective and um, how I can be better in my life or just how I can um, just appreciate my life better. And, um, and then with podcasts, you're hearing, you know, usually like a, it's a very real conversation between two people, um, just sort of stream of consciousness and you're, you're gaining their new perspectives and their new, the ways that they see things or think about things. And so I really like that about podcasts. Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree. Um, but it feels like, a. uh, Maybe I mean maybe that's again that's the the uh, the trick and the appeal of authenticity when it feels like a genuine discovery for the people speaking. Well, then uh, you know I I often will end these things by reading a poem that I like. Uh, what are um, you know for the for the information gathering types? Are there some uh, novels or podcasts or pieces of music that you you would especially recommend uh, apart from? Billie Eilish, um, I mean, pop, pop or classical or or whatever. Yeah. Um, a movie. So, um, let me think about this. The Dutch House um, by Ann Patchett. I recently read that. I I love Ann Patchett. She's a great writer. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed that one. Um, it's a brother and sister and sort of their family history and um you know the backdrop is this house they grew up in um which you know kind of the story of the house and of their growing up and their life um but that's that was beautiful and yeah the, i i really enjoyed that one um Oh, when you ask me all these for for titles, I'm like drawing a blank. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, just um, if anything that you've particularly enjoyed or that that, that comes to mind as a um, something that you would be glad to have learned about if you were listening to some random fucking podcast about poetry and pop stars and siblings rattling on. Yeah, um, Schubert's B flat sonata is. Um, in, in terms of sort of developments of themes and journeys. And um, that is a really, one of my favorite. What what number is that? I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, Schubert's uh, B-flat sonata. B-flat, that sounds familiar. Um, extremely limited knowledge of this one. 960. I, oh, I it's was, one of the last, it's one of the last three. Yeah. Okay. So those are the only ones I know. <laughs> the only yeah. as I know, and they're, they're terrific. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I, I just feel like it's someone at the end of their life looking back and at everything, you know, and just there's, there's a sort of nostalgia about it. Um, and just sort of all of the, the moments throughout your life. That's like my own inter, I, I mean, I don't know what, if that's necessarily what it's about, but that's what it's about to me. And it, I always feel like I hear something new when I listen to it. Um, and there's sort of this coming to um, a realization of peace for me um, when I listen to it. So yeah, that's one of my very, very favorite classical works. Um, he, was, he was like 31 when he died. He was, he was pretty young. Wasn't yeah. He? 
So like Daniel's age here. (laughs) (laughs) He had all of the wisdom of somebody like Daniel. (laughs) It's so terrible when these, these great minds die so young. So yeah, I I reread the heart is lonely hunter uh, a year or so ago. And then I, I like flipped to the dates in the back and looked at her, her birth and birth and death dates and then looked at the date i realized like oh she wrote this book when she was 22 i think um and it's like it's like one of those books that is has all of the perspective of you know somebody in late late middle age if you know if not older and sort of sweeps through the whole town all these different uh slices of life and you think like fucking what What you (laughs) you finished that you published that when you were 22 which means you started it you know good god yeah so uh, uh but yeah that's uh good well those are that's a good that's a good recommendation i will and i'm, I'm any any of the stuff that we talked about that ends up in the final episode i'm gonna put uh links in the show notes um which i should ask as somebody who uh listens to this has picked up and, and listened to a couple of these not with any like uh, feverish, you know, subscription from the beginning. Do the show notes ever reach you? Or is that something you're even aware of? Um, I'm usually listening to it in the car. And I actually, it's hard for me to listen to it all the way through because um, it's usually when I'm going from one thing to another. Oh yeah, that, that's fine. I'm, I'm just curious that like, there's a page of notes where I put links to everything I talk about. Oh, um, and that's... I think so. Yeah. I'm listening to it like either with the phone or it's connected through the car. Yeah, and I guess yeah, I'm yeah. not necessarily looking, looking at the phone. When yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. It. So they're, they're probably coming up. I just haven't. Oh yeah. No, I mean, it's just one of the, one of the things I wonder uh, to what extent I'm making it available to people. And I should, I may, I may have to make a, I mean, just, just like say that to help people reach them if they, cause it is, it's a weird technology. Like our, our our friend uh, who's a, a poet told Jonathan and me. He said, "You know, we talk. We do these talks once a month or so. We, what we should do is we should really. It would be so great if we could have these conversations, and then you could kind of record them, and then people could listen and sort of benefit from the conversations. You know, like sort of once a month or so. And they, they I think that would be like a really good idea. And we're like, yeah, you just described a podcast." You know? <laughs> And I sent him a thing, like a, like, a, like a couple months after that, I sent him a thing saying like, oh, I'm starting a podcast. And he was like, what the fuck is a podcast? <laughs> so yeah, I think it's, um, the, there's still a technological barrier, but okay, good. Good to know. Um, yeah. Any uh, any any parting words for uh, the, the, the dubious crowd that semi-regularly listens to this shit? Hmm. I'm not good with words. Um... <laughs> <laughs> So I'll just end on that one for the poetry, for the poetry podcast. I'm not good with words. (laughs) Plenty of, plenty of poets are, are not either. That was my conversation with Anna Catherine Backer, uh, my little sister and a pretty interesting lady. 
So as soon as uh, AK mentioned this poem, I knew I, I wanted to read it to, to close out the episode. This is a Valediction Forbidding Morning by John Donne. Uh, I imagine uh, most, if not all of you already know this poem pretty well, but um, man, it is, it is really, it is really one of the good ones. So uh, I think it's, it's worth, uh, it's worth hearing through. Again, I do have a couple little thoughts, probably nothing, you know, terribly new, but um, yeah, I really, I really do enjoy this poem. All right. This is a valediction forbidding morning by John Donne. As virtuous men pass mildly away and whisper to their souls to go, whilst some of their sad friends do say, the breath goes now, and some say, no. So let us melt and make no noise. No tear floods nor sigh tempests move Toward profanation of our joys to tell the laity our love. Moving of the earth brings harms and fears. Men reckon what it did and meant. But trepidation of the spheres, though greater far, is innocent. Dull sublunary lovers love, whose soul is sense, cannot admit absence because it doth remove those things which elemented it. But we, by a love so much refined that ourselves know not what it is, enter assured of the mind, care less eyes, lips, and hands to miss. Our two souls, therefore, which are one, though I must go, Endure not yet a breach, but an expansion, like gold to airy thinness beat. If they be two, they are two so as stiff twin compasses are two. Thy soul, the fixed foot, makes no show to move, but doth if the other do. And though it in the center sit, Yet when the other far doth roam, it leans and hearkens after it and grows erect as that comes home. Such wilt thou be to me, who must, like the other foot, obliquely run. Thy firmness makes my circle just and makes me end where I begun. It's a, you know, it's a beautifully structured argument and it, and it is, um, you know, as a poem insisting on the transcendence of this, this particular, uh, marital love, it is, um, persuasive, but, you know, I, I'm going to, um, I'm recording right now another episode about poems that make, uh, arguments. Um, and, uh, you know, whether rightly or not, I, I can't help in reading this poem, but to, um, to hear within it is sort of this other voice underneath the, the, the main voice, you know, so that, um, though this is a poem forbidding morning, this is a poem of comfort saying, you know, we, we do not change. We do not really break apart. We are really 
one, as, as AK, you know, said a number of times, like gold to airy thinness beat, uh, like the compass whose, who's, you know, um, whose legs are separate, but really it is, it's all one whole. Um, uh, though this is, you know, a poem of reassurance, it's, it's filled with what sound very much to me, like, like doubt, you know, this is a poem about, um, done the, the you know the the voice of the poem is about to travel you know and travel uh is um was a lot less certain and safe then than than it is now uh and so all of the fears that one might have about one's loved one when when separated you know by significant distance seem to sort of bubble up throughout all of his um insistence that they will be fine, that there's nothing to worry about. He begins with death and not just any death, but the death of a good man. You know, the beginning of the poem is bad things happen to good people as virtuous men pass mildly away. And then again, you know, in, in naming what not to do, um, he says, don't, you know, don't cry, don't sigh, but he says, no tear floods, nor sigh tempests move. So again, there's storms and floods coming into this imagination of his um, moving of the earth. He, he imagines earthquakes, uh, trepidation of the spheres, you know, the movement of the celestial objects above us that determine our fates. Um, and then, you know, it's funny that line, dull sublunary lovers love, uh, he's identifying a, a kind of love that is lesser. It's, it's love that it exists only under the moon, unlike their love, which is you know, lofty, like the, the highest spheres. Um, dull sublunary lovers love is one of the most memorable lines in the poem. It's, there's one of the, it's probably the line I held on to most after reading this initially in high school. And it's quite lovely. Um, despite himself, it, it sounds, you know, he's, he makes this thing that he means to dismiss sound, um, pretty, uh, touching and attractive. Um, and then there is this, I think I find a, it's a, a line I find really sad and moving. Um, he says, we're not like all of that. We're not like all of those material lovers, those lovers who are grounded in the earth and in all of the, the, um, the accidents that can occur uh, on this physical plane. We, we exist in this other way. We have a more you know, platonic bond. He says, but we by a love so much refined how much refined is it, John, that ourselves know not what it is? There's a, uh, it's a beautifully written line, but it's also a little bit of a confession of, um, of, of ignorance, of not, you know, of uncertainty. Uh, just like, you know, in the line above, you know, the stanza above, dull sublunary lover, lovers love. Um, he has one of these classic uh, uh, line breaks. It actually reminds me very much of um, uh, Shakespeare's 116. Um, uh, Let me not, not to the marriage of true minds admit impediment. Love is not love, which alters when it alteration finds. Of course, that, that line is broken. Love is not love, line break, which alters when it alteration finds. And here, again, um, he says, uh, you know, done in a, you know, in a line that does that does echo that poem a little bit, uh, dull, sub, dull sublunary lovers love whose soul a sense cannot admit 
line break, absence, which, you know, if one didn't know better, one might think is, is maybe what's happening here, that there is something that he cannot quite admit to his wife or to himself. Um, and, I, you know, again, I don't mean to, to, to say that this whole poem is protesting too much. I don't think it is at all. Again, I think it's a really beautiful uh, touching argument. Um, I think it's all the more touching for containing within it these ripples of sorrow and uncertainty of fear um, that uh, give his love for his wife some of the the you know the physical reality I think without which um, this would be a sort of a dry, cold poem, um, but it's not at all. Uh, and, um, you know, we, uh, we of course get that, that uh, little suggestion of the, the old, the young done um, and that compass growing erect uh, at the end. But I, you know, I, I just, I think it's a, it is a, um, it's a poem that uh, that performs its argument as much on the speaker as on um, the audience. So uh, that was John Donne's Valediction Forbidding Morning, and this is Slee Ricketts. Uh, thank you for listening. Um, if you have anything you'd like to say, good, bad, or otherwise, uh, write to sleericketts at gmail.com uh, and uh, take a second sometime this week to recommend the show to somebody you think would like it. Um, with any luck, I will be speaking to you very soon. Until then. Until then.